0: I'm Sylvia Burgos-Tofnes and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store Visit the farmer's market and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. This Deep Roots radio interview with Jen Eichard was recorded February 1st, 2020, just a few weeks before the 31st Annual Organic Farming Conference. This event is organized and sponsored by Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Services nonprofit. Eichert is a nationally and internationally recognized agricultural economist, and he was scheduled to be the conference keynote speaker on Saturday, February 29th. It is an amazing uh, gathering of um, farmers, uh, people who work with farmers, um, in order to produce some of the most healthful not only most healthful and delicious food but to use practices that actually restore mm-hmm. instead of degrade our environment and of course however the the effort is always how do you do this and make a living wage mm-hmm. out of it as you know dave corbett in nine in was it in 2018 the state of wisconsin lost nearly 600 small farms right This uh, and last year, they lost many more Mm -hmm. than that. All over the country, we are losing small family farms. And what you see is consolidations. Right. What you see are confinement feed operations, CAFOs, and the increased industrialization of agriculture. Uh, I think, Dave Corbett, when you and I were growing up, Farms were able to actually support a family and send kids to school, Mm -hmm. something that is nearly impossible now. In fact, farmers, many farmers are among those who might be considered the working poor Mm -hmm. in the United States. And that add to that all of the uh, laborers who assist in this work. And we've got a strange situation going on here. I mean, how did we get this way? Well, this morning we have with us someone who can shed a whole lot of light on the current state of the American agricultural system. And maybe uh, let us know, are there alternative paths to get big or get out? We have with us this morning John Eichert. John, you are a keynote speaker at the upcoming organic farming conference so as a as a member of the board of moses i thank you very very much and as
1: well, a f- thank you for the, thank you for the opportunity if you had anything to do with it i i was uh, you know i spoke at the moses conference 21 years ago in 1999 I, it was at uh Cincinnati or right mm-hmm. at that time yeah. So I'm very honored to be asked to come back to this conference. I'm very aware of the of the status of it and the size of it. And as you said, it is the biggest sustainable organic conference in the country.
0: Well, I had nothing to do with the selection. Fortunately, we have an excellent staff and other board who got involved. And of course, you come uh, to this conference and to the nation as a whole with an amazing amount of experience um, that helps us as we talk about farming in America this morning. John, we are at a time, if I'm correct, and if I'm not, please do uh, set me straight. We're at a time where there seems to be just consolidation after consolidation as we look at the American landscape when it comes to farming. The dairy farms are tens of thousands of cows. Hog operations are 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 cows. And forget about the chickens. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of animals in a a small area. We're talking about uh, fence row to fence row planting, which is, of course, something that came to us courtesy of the 1970s and Earl Butts, the Ag Secretary at the time. And here we are. How would you describe the agricultural landscape right now?
1: Well, I think I think it's a time – I agree with your description straight across the board. It's a time when there's an increasing push on what I call the industrialization of agriculture. And I think industrialization in general is characterized by what we see in agriculture. It's characterized by, by specialization, specialized in doing fewer things so you can do them quicker and faster and more efficiently. Once you specialize, then you need to standardize those processes so that it all fits together. Once you standardize, you can kind of routinize and mechanize. And this allows you then to go to the third step, which is consolidation. Once you simplified, mechanized the production process, like like assembly line work, then you can consolidate it into larger and larger operations because you simplified the management of it. This whole process in agriculture began in earnest. Mechanization began earlier. But this process of industrialization, really began in earnest back in the 1970s, as you mentioned in the the Nixon-Butts era. And there was a fundamental shift in agricultural policy at that time, away from uh, supporting independent family farms, providing economic security for family farmers as a means of food security, to simply focusing on the efficiency of agriculture. And they chose that industrial model to bring about the efficiency, specialized, standardized, consolidated. As I say, it was the World War II kind of chemical, uh, mechanical technologies of the cheap commercial fertilizers and pesticides and then the the affordable farm tractors and this sort of thing that made that possible, but with the change in farm policies that made it inevitable. And so we've, we've been in that process over the years, and it's getting more and more in terms of consolidation. And for many years, it was consolidation into larger farms and fewer farms. And now it's consolidation of control under a few large agribusiness corporations that increasingly controlled agriculture through comprehensive contractual arrangements, such as we saw first in chickens and then in hogs and to a certain extent in beef. And that's what we see happening now in dairy, is this last stage of industrialization where they drive the independent family dairy farmers out of business, and they're replaced with large confinement uh, dairy operations.
0: So let me ask a question at this point. What many people may not realize is that, that, as you've just said, this third stage, there are very, very few large companies that are in control of this last stage of getting the a food from the field to a plate. Correct. So when we take a look at let's say the the meats, the proteins, the the hogs. How many big processors are there really? How many big companies?
1: Well, there there are uh, you know specific uh, statistics on each one of the sectors of agriculture and they generally talk about the, what percent is controlled by the top 4 in a particular industry, and you go across industry by industry, whether it's pork or beef processing, or or seeds or uh, fertilizers, uh, uh, across that whole range of industrial agricultural corporations, uh, we find that the top four will control from 50 to 70 to 80 percent. I can't recall the specific percentages for particular industries, but it's but it's across the whole sector of agriculture that we mm-hmm. have. You know, 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of the total production or total processing um, is controlled by four farms or, or less. And anything over 50 percent in economic terms is considered something that historically would have required antitrust regulations to break up that industry and to um, ensure that uh, no no small number of farms were able to to manipulate prices in order to drive independent producers out of business.
0: You know, John, this, this uh, what you've just said makes me think about some about going to the grocery store. All right. So we go to the grocery store whether it's a big box or something smaller. And you take a look at the shelves of food. And and right now for, for today's conversation, let's just go to the meat chiller. You go there and you think that you're looking at lots of different brands. But you're really not
1: right, and, and you think that you're looking at a wide variety of products but you're you're really not it, it's really the same basic sort of raw materials that are differentiated in ways that make in different packaging different cuts different uh, you, you know colors and things of this nature to make people think that they have this wide variety of products to choose from and as you say If you look at the specific brands, you think, well, you've got a number of different brands to choose from in terms of what companies are producing them. But not only do we have consolidation of those brands so that a few large uh, food industry or food firms control a a wide range of brands, but I think more important in terms of the, the farm level is what we've been doing basically for the past 20 years is any increase in efficiency of agriculture production at the farm level in terms of reducing uh, the farm level cost of production has has been used as cheap raw materials to, to produce these junk foods, what I call them, highly processed packaged foods, to sell to us as consumers. And we talk about you know, moving toward this industrial agriculture as a means of increasing agricultural efficiency. And I bought into that like the first 15 years or first half of my academic career. I thought we were going to, you know, increase the efficiency of agriculture, bring down cost of production, and we would bring down food costs. I thought we were going to make good food, good wholesome food, affordable to everyone. And between the 1970s and the 1990s, there was a significant reduction in what the average consumer what percent of their income went from food, from about 19%, a little less than 20, to down less than 10%. But what most people don't realize is, the last 20 years, since the late 90s in fact, food prices have gone up, retail food prices, have gone up faster than the overall inflation rate. Hmm. So, So whatever reduction in farm level cost of production has been achieved through this industrialization and corporate takeover of agriculture has not benefited the consuming public. It's simply been used to increase the profitability of those large agribusiness business corporations that are processing packaging, advertising, promoting this whole range of uh, of uh, kind of uh, food like substances as they've been called that were offered in the in the grocery store
0: okay, so so you're alluding to the fact that we're really not we're we're, we're being sold edibles that aren't necessarily nutritionally. Uh, good right. for us. At so,
1: higher prices.
0: At higher prices. Okay, we get to pay more for junk. Let me ask right. you this as, as we take a look at that whole shift from at one time was a nation of, of lots of different, lots of farmers with smaller holdings to the situation w- where we've got now, which is not only the consolidation of the farms, but also the, the amazing consolidations of processing. How has this affected the nutrition of our food?
1: Well, I think there's there's beginning to be studies that have come out now. You know, it, it's unconscionable that we haven't been conducting the studies over the years to see what's happening to the nutritional value of food as we've industrialized the system. But there's increasing studies now, scientific studies that are coming out across the country, and most of them are not being done by the big agricultural colleges, even though they have, you know, food service uh, departments and food science departments that could and should have been doing these things. Most of them are done by public health institutions, by medical universities, and by people that are concerned about kind of this growing epidemic of obesity and diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and a whole range of things that are associated with the American diet and when they when they look at these studies and do comparisons between specifically between the studies that were done in the past on which most of the the information that's available through usda and elsewhere uh, is based where they say there's a certain amount of vitamin a vitamin c niacin uh, you know calcium iron and so on in a in a carrot or or in cabbage or in beef or pork or whatever it is when they compare what we have now in terms of the nutrient density, they call it the food, relative to what we've had in previous times before this industrialization, uh, then they're finding that there's significant reductions in those studies straight across the board, particularly in, in the micronutrients and, uh, and the uh, uh, flavonoids and antioxidants and things like this that affect our immune system and other kind of subtleties of what keep us healthy. And and what what it turns out to be is that those are the things, the elements that would be in in healthy, uh, biologically active, biologically healthy soils. Those mm. would be the things that would be uptaken in the soils. And what we've done, rather than relying on, uh, rather than relying on naturally uh, fertile soils and maintaining and continually regenerating the fertility of the soils, we've simply found in this simple. Uh, uh commercial fertilizers of nitrogen phosphate potash and calcium and a few other things. And, and so the, if the crops are feeding on, on nutrients or so their nutrition is something that's not complete in terms of the total amount of minerals and the variety of minerals and things that they need, then we, we're ending up with crops then that are lacking in those nutrients and then we end up in animals that are lacking in those nutrients because they're not in the crops. So I think there's research that are showing that unless we have healthy soils, healthy biologically active soils that have all that complete range of nutrients that humans need in those soils, then we're going to end up with food that are lacking in nutrition and we're going to end up with people that are lacking in nutrition. Mm. And I think the, the research is coming out from a variety of different places now, but that's the general trend of the information that's becoming available.
0: Well, you know, this, this March... Of industrialization, it, it, I mean, you can feel the the stomp of the footprints uh, on the soil as as we go from year to year. It, it feels like an inevitability. Um, as farming continues in this direction, what are also some of the impacts on farm communities across the country?
1: Right. Well. Um I would like to come back and question the inevitability, but let 's talk about Good. the impact on rural communities. I think this is I first become aware that there was something fundamentally wrong with this kind of agriculture you know at a deeper level back in the 1980s and this was what I still refer to as the time of the farm financial crisis so i 'd been supporting this, you know this industrial agriculture we were going to reduce the cost of food. But by increasing the opportunities for farmers to reduce their cost of production, then this was supposed to increase the profitability of agriculture because the innovative farmers, it would be profitable. We would have profitable farms, which would be lead to uh, economically viable, profitable rural communities. And so we would see, you know, the continued growth and viability and health of uh, people that lived in rural areas. When I was growing up on the farm in, the, you know, the 40s and, and 50s, um you know, farms were considered to be very good places to live as we're rural communities. But when we when we got into the nineteen eighties and began to see as the farms got larger then the farms meant they were inevitably fewer. And even if those farms had been profitable, they weren't certainly weren't during the nineteen eighties, we'd had a drop in export markets and we're in a financial crisis. Um, that I realized that as the farm got larger they inevitably got fewer. And I could see in the 1980s, not only were farmers going broke because they had borrowed money at high interest rates and then the export markets collapsed and they were caught. They simply couldn't pay them off. But, but also the rural communities were dying. And I came to the realization then, it's not just production or it's not just profits that supports communities or rural communities. It's people. And, and if you don't have opportunities for a large number of of family farmers out here in many of these communities, which farming is the you know that 's their natural advantage within the overall economy because of the land and the space and if you don 't have opportunities for a large number of farm families, then you can 't support those communities and so I saw as the farmers were going broke and the families you know we economists we assume well, if they can 't make a living farming, then they'll simply find a job somewhere else they 'll find their better economic opportunity. But that's not the way it works. People had spent their whole lives in their communities. They were connected to those communities. They didn't, didn't want to leave. And so eventually they may have been forced to leave, but when they were, then those families were left without schools. I mean, without kids to keep the schools open. They were left without people to sit in the church pews. They were left without the people to serve on volunteer fire departments and other things. Because it takes people that are committed to a community to keep those communities alive. And, and we've seen ever since then the continual decline, economic, social, ecological decay of rural communities. The, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article in 2017 that quoted a whole range of statistics, employment, health, uh, teen pregnancy, uh, crime rates, a whole range of things that rated rural areas. They called it the, the new inner city and in fact, rural areas laid it below the inner city on a whole range of things that we associate with, with poverty. And then uh, drug abuse and crime and things of that nature used to be you know, the problems of the inner city. And now we see that coming into rural areas. So, so that's the, the, the social as well as the ecological consequences of this industrialization of agriculture. But, but I want to get back to kind of where you started from. All of this wasn't inevitable. In fact, when I talked at, at the Moses Conference in 1999, I talked about the possibility of a transformation, a, a renaissance in agriculture, because we were in the midst of the sustainable agriculture movement and it was coming on. But, As I indicated before, you, you know, this was, whole industrialization was made inevitable by changing policies. And, and in the 90s, we had seen kind of a realization of what industrial agriculture was doing. We were focused on soil erosion, water quality, and a range of things in terms of policy. But we simply didn't carry through with those policies. If we'd have carried through with the changes in farm policy that seemed possible, if not inevitable in the late 1990s, we wouldn't have had this past 20 years of continued consolidation of agriculture into larger and larger, and now into corporate operations. We would have carried through with that renaissance, that, that sustainability revolution that Moses was born out of. So, you know, we still have the possibility, we still have the opportunity, and I want to talk about that this year. We have an opportunity to fundamentally transform the agriculture of this country by transforming a fundamental change in environment food policies.
0: What would that look like, John? You know, here you are. I'm sitting here talking to you. Dave Corbett is here as well. We're both small farmers. You know, I raise grass-fed beef on just 72 acres. Um, Dave Corbett comes from uh, having retired already as a dairy farmer and now raising grass-fed beef as well. And certainly that is the kind of of, uh, collection of farmers that you're going to be seeing as you well know at the organic farming conference these are farmers who are absolutely dedicated to sustainability on the land animal welfare but they also have to make have to be economically sustainable so as you take a look at policy john what is it that that policy has to look like so that we have farming that restores our environment provides nutritional food nutritious food and is economically sustainable at the farm and in the community
1: right i've been uh working over the past few months with a a group that basically young people um it's called data for progress but they're supporting what's called the the sunrise movement and those are the people that are really supporting uh the green new deal or the yeah the green new deal and agriculture is a significant part of that Green New Deal. And they've just come up and published a, um, a, a, a paper, or published a bulletin, which basically outlines the policy proposals that, for implementing kind of the Green New Deal in agriculture. And, you know, they can go to Data for Progress and put, uh, it's called Regenerative Agriculture in the Green New Deal. But anyway, some of the policies like you talked about that could bring about that transformational change was first begin to phase out the subsidies that we have for the industrial agriculture today. Basically, this industrial model of agriculture that I've talked about is, is productive in terms of just the bottom line economic productivity. But it's also inherently very risky to have these large operations. For for example, to go out and plant thousands of acres in corn and soybeans when you've got the uh, in variable, increasingly unpredictable kind of weather conditions and you've got all sorts of disease problems that can come in and weeds and things of that nature. And in these large confinement animal feeding operations, there's always the possibility of disease that will wipe them out and so on. But, but up to now, we've had government programs that basically we, the taxpayers, have been assuming risk. We've been paying about 60% of the cost of the risk of... Of, of the crop insurance that covers not only yield insurance, but also the price insurance that makes it possible for these big operations to out and plant the whole county in a single crop to specialize. And then in the CAFO operations, basically the biggest subsidy is we don't regulate them. We don't make them operate under the same conditions that any other factory that have produced that amount of biological waste would produce. And when they do get into a problem with the disease, as we've seen recently, the government steps in pays the payments, has disaster payments of some sort, comes in cleans up the facilities for them. So so we need to begin to phase out of those programs that are based on specific commodities. I think the most important thing in this new proposal that's fundamentally different, it would say transform those commodity-based programs into whole farm risk insurance, where where the government would step in and say, okay, rather than accepting the risk of large-scale industrial agriculture, Let's accept the risk of families that want to transition from industrial agriculture to a regenerative, sustainable agriculture or people like yourself who want to get started in this regenerative, sustainable agriculture and reach a scale where you can make a decent living doing it by selling into local markets or people selling to people not necessarily all local but people that value your product. But let's assume the risk as, as taxpayers of people that are willing to make that transition, and willing to develop a farm plan that will allow them to move in that direction. And rather than giving parity prices, let's give parity income to those farmers. So if there's a short call in the family income below what average non-farm family in that area would make, the insurance simply makes up the difference. And this makes it possible for people to come in and get started in this kind of agriculture. I tell people, I can remember when industrial agriculture came on the scene, the first I saw of it was a steam engine that came by my grade school. That was the only mechanized thing in our area at that time. But but anyway, the alternative, sustainable, regenerative, holistic management, uh, permaculture, a whole range of things are far farther advanced in terms of replacing industrial agriculture than industrial agriculture was in the 1970s. And if we have a, ch- a change in farm policies, a fundamental shift that would— we- be the change kind of represented in in the vision of the Green New Deal that addresses not only environmental climate change problems but also addresses the social and economic problems that underlie those problems then we could fundamentally transform agriculture into something that's very different and much better than what we have today
0: so here I am I'm listening to you I know there are lots of farmers who are as well as food lovers all across the country what can we do to kind of help this along
1: if anything well, I think there's there's two different kinds of things to do. The things that we do individually, those of us that buy food, we can purchase from and we can show preference for those farmers such as yourself that are producing, you know, the products that not only meet our nutritional standards and our safety standards with respect to organic, but that are produced in ways that maintain the ecological and social integrity of the agricultural system and we spend so little on most of us on average for food that we could afford to pay a few more cents you know at the grocery store to get things that 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 really fit our value system that we think will support the sustainability of agriculture but but in addition to making those choices and on the farm level side is to seek out customers that value what you do uh... you're never going to have the transformation of agriculture selling into this big commodity-based industrial food processing and distribution system we've got to create alternative local systems that address that but the other thing is is we have to stay involved in changing the public policy we've got to stay involved in informing ourselves on the policy and making choices uh, with respect to who we support and don't support and this election and future elections and how we go about supporting initiatives at the state capitals and at the local county in terms of uh, you know local control, we've got to become involved as individuals, but ultimately we've got to come together collectively. And collectively, that's how we gain the power to more than offset the power of the large agribusiness corporations. Ultimately, we the people still have the power in this country. We just need to inform ourselves and then to, to find the courage to claim that.
0: Well, John, where can people go to find out more? You've got a
1: website? Yes, johnikard.com. But in John That's my personal website, and you'll find a link there to my University of Missouri website, where I posted um, hundreds of papers actually over the years on a whole range of subjects that I've written about. So it's easy to find uh, the information, and then you know, go from there. And obviously, Moses is a is a tremendous place to go to get information on a whole range of, uh, of things that people, farmers and consumers alike, need to address.
0: Well, John, I want to thank you so much for being with us this morning, and I look forward to meeting you at the Organic Farming Conference. We've been talking with John Eichert, agricultural economist, the author of many, many books. Um, He has contributed to to, uh, scores and scores of presentations and articles, and you can find out more about him and his work. These are terrific publications, including a book called Small Farms Are Real Farms. Um, at johnigerd.com, which is J-O-H-N-I-K-E-R-D.com. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.